You're listening to a podcast from Heart. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Heart Podcast. I'm Dr. Alistair Lindsay. And on this particular occasion, we're broadcasting from the British Cardiovascular Society meeting in May 2012, which this year is being held in Manchester. This year, we're really fortunate to have with us uh, some outstanding speakers from both sides of the Atlantic. And in this particular session, we're going to call on some of that expertise to talk a little bit about atherosclerotic plaque imaging, past, present and future. I'm very fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Matthias Narendorf, who is visiting and speaking today from Harvard University. Accompanying him is Dr. Farouk Jaffer, who also works in Boston. Uh, Dr. James Rudd joins us from Cambridge and Dr. Robin Chowdy from Oxford. So what we'll try and do to give a little bit of structure to the discussion is move from a bench to bench site. Obviously, there is a lot of molecular work, particularly looking at molecular imaging in atherosclerosis. But ultimately, we're trying to translate this through into the clinical realm. So if I could start by turning to Dr. Narendorf. Uh, Matthias, you've published on uh, several areas of molecular imaging. And one thing that perhaps we should talk about in the beginning is what target we're looking for in imaging the atherosclerotic plaque. So at the moment, the clinical assessment for patients with coronary disease will be mostly an angiogram. If we want to look at macroscopic structure, we can use uh, IVIS or OCT down the coronaries, and obviously there's non-invasive methods as well. But in terms of the biology of atherosclerotic plaque, what targets have you been looking into and which particular proteins do you feel we should be looking at in order to try and advance our understanding of atherosclerosis? So that's an interesting question, and there's probably some debate in the field uh, about what would be the best target. And uh, right now, I don't think I can give a clear answer to that. There's a variety of targets that that we have been looking into uh, and the field has been looking into. And uh, starting at the beginning, at the onset of atherosclerosis, these would be adhesion molecules that are expressed by the activated endothelium and which are actively involved in recruiting inflammatory cells into the plaque. So that's probably not so much a vulnerable plaque uh, imaging uh, target, but it it could be really helpful to identify uh, identify inflamed plaque. Then down the line, the, 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 the main culprit cells that are involved in making a plaque unstable and uh, secrete instigators of inflammation and also proteases which digest matrix in a plaque are macrophages and they are uh, they are progenitors monocytes and this has been really one of the main uh, uh, focuses in the field and and different uh, imaging modalities have been used to try and image these cells for instance with nanoparticles uh, we have used iron oxide uh, nanoparticles that can be detected by mri um, you can also derivatize these nanoparticles with PET isotopes that you can then detect by PET imaging um, or with fluorochromes for optical imaging. Um, on top of uh, these two uh, uh, categories, I, I think there's really a, a multitude of other ideas what could be helpful. For instance, proteases that digest uh, extracellular matrix uh, uh, integrins are also very popular. These are expressed, for instance, uh, during the uh, growth of new uh, small vessels in the plaque and, and are pursued uh, by, by a, a large number of groups. 
So thank you. That's a nice summary. And uh, the further question moving on for that is that we obviously have a large number of targets, as you've outlined. And part of that is that a lot of the research to date has been done in very small animal models, and particularly in your case in the mouse. I think a real challenge for molecular imaging moving forward is obviously how we translate that into larger animal models and towards humans as well. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, that's not going to be a straightforward thing to do. That's right. Um, we, we have been focusing on the mouse also because it's fairly expensive and complicated to make these molecular agents. And so if you look at the mouse, you really need just a tiny dose. So it makes a lot of sense to start with mice. But then the next step should be an intermediate uh, uh, step where we are looking at larger uh, animals such as uh, rabbits, for instance. And uh, the, the main hurdles to the field are once you once you really identify uh, an agent that you, you're confident about is to do toxicology studies and get the regulatory approval to start uh, first in men studies. And that's not an easy and not a cheap uh, uh, thing to do. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a topic we'll probably come back to, to later, but it's interesting to see some of the hurdles that are there. Um, if I could move on to Farouk, uh, thank you for presenting some beautiful data earlier on today at the conference about your long-standing work uh, looking at inflammation and uh, using fluorescence in particular uh, to do so. Could you maybe just summarize uh, some of that work you've been doing for several years now just for the benefit of the podcast? Sure. Thanks, Alistair. Pleasure to be here. Um, we have been looking at fluorescence-based imaging to really meet the need uh, in the coronary arteries because much of our imaging modalities and approaches have been very useful for large, large arteries such as the carotids and aorta, and we'll hear more about that um, here. But one of the challenges in the coronary arteries is, is really having sensitive and um, specific tools to interrogate the plaques that are going to cause myocardial infarction and sudden cardiac death. I would postulate that while we have a tremendous amount to learn from the carotids, that there is definitely, it's not clear that there is a one-to-one -one match or that one can use non-coronary based imaging to predict the risk of heart attack and death. So with that in mind, we have embraced a lot of fluorescence-based imaging approaches. Fluorescence is very tractable for the coronary arteries because it's based on light, similar to optical coherence tomography or angioscopy or near-infrared spectroscopy, which are all clinical tools used in human coronaries today. Um, we've been interested in inflammation because, as, as you were hearing, some of the, the key aspects um, that Matthias pointed out are important in the early pathogenesis and late complications of plaques that cause heart attacks. And to do this, we've um, taken the initial reporters that were validated in mice um, by his group and many others, and now have scaled those up to work in rabbits. And with a catheter-based approach, using coronary-sized vessels in the rabbits, for example, their aorta, we have been able to map and identify inflammation with very high sensitivity, both using through-blood approaches and then in combined approaches with fluorescence and OCT catheters. That's gonna allow us to ultimately get a comprehensive map of high-risk plaques, which include their structure, and then mapping on top of that where the augmented inflammation might be to understand really what is perhaps even higher risk. Yeah, so that's right. So you, you get some biological information on top of the existing microscopic information we can get about the, the plaque. Taking that a step forward, and you mentioned your, your catheter-based approach is something that's very familiar to cardiologists. And I think in terms of translating these techniques, that's something that's, that's going to be vital because people tend to use stuff they're familiar with. 
But let's say we, we do find a more widespread application of, the, of your cancer-based therapy. Um, can you give us some idea of the sort of clinical trials and their scale we're going to need before we can start applying these techniques routinely? Sure. So that's a great question. I think um, clearly we don't want to use an invasive screening approach as our primary um, uh, approach to first stratify patients. But in that tiered hierarchy of risk stratification, once we understand a patient to be high risk from biomarkers and non-invasive imaging, these are the types of patients that we might enroll in invasive screening trials. For example, the PROSPECT trial. The PROSPECT trial is an interesting one to discuss because while the primary endpoint did not suggest that virtual histology added massively to our understanding of risk prediction, it was moderately helpful. Um, I think that we understood that plaque burden was another unexpected um, but very powerful feature for predicting uh, future progression. Um, the I would not take away for the field that invasive screening is not appropriate or going to be helpful. The, the PROSPECT study was the first study to really do this in a comprehensive way, and it used virtual histology, ultrasound, it's one, bit, one technique. The field is really moving to a multimodal approach, which is going to look not just at IVS-VH, but also incorporating optical coherence tomography, and we also are, are um, aiming for inflammation imaging to be part of that as well. So I think when we have a comprehensive map, structurally um, and perhaps chemically and then also biologically, now we really have the tools to have a high-quality predictive study. And so I think that's where the field is going to go. We're going to start with our very high-risk population from secondary prevention, perhaps, and or from primary prevention identified non-invasively, and then um, identify who might be rationally screened um, invasively from that, and then follow. We need registries, just like the prospect study, um, prospective trials um, to do this. Um, but we shouldn't give up because the consequences are dramatic um, for um, identification accurately. Well, thank you. I mean, there's a lot of interesting points there. If I, if I could perhaps move to now to James, who's uh, published extensively in the field of FTG PET imaging of vascular disease. Uh, Farouk made a couple of really nice points there. The word multimodal is something that comes up a lot in the literature. Uh, I'd be interested to know your, your thoughts on that and particularly the role, obviously, of nuclear uh, imaging there. Um, are these multimodal imaging trials something that uh, we can start immediately? Or again, is this something more for the future? I completely agree with uh, with Farouk. We really do need to show that the identification of both, let's say, vulnerable plaque, but also vulnerable patients is worthwhile in terms of uh, end result, and predicting heart attacks, predicting strokes, and therefore better stratifying treatment. There are these studies already underway. In fact, there's a, a study called the, the High Risk Plaque Project, which is uh, is being led by uh, Valentine Fuster in, in New York. It's due to report in 2013, and, and they randomized a group of patients at high risk of cardiovascular events, but without uh, previous events, and did imaging at baseline with ultrasound, CT, MRI, and FTG PET-CT. And they hypothesized that baseline imaging would be able to better predict those at risk or those who would have heart attacks than simple framing them risk scoring at baseline. And that study's due to report in, in 2013. And I think it will really help to, to put some of these techniques in the correct order uh, that they should be used, if they should be used at all. And I think this concept of applying the techniques to the, the high-risk population, as, as we were outlining, is, is absolutely vital. And you were presenting some data earlier today on how you've done that in a rheumatoid arthritis population mm. who we know are high-risk for coronary disease. Could you tell us a little bit about that mm. study? The study was designed to, to measure 
vascular inflammation in, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and compare them to a group of comparator subjects with known stable coronary artery disease. And we used patients that were being uh, considered for anti-TNF therapy uh, with the drug infliximab, which is a potent anti-inflammatory uh, medication. And we measured the degree of FTG uptake in the wall of the aorta as a surrogate for vascular inflammation. And we saw that there was a drop of between 10 and 25% in the degree of FTG uptake in the wall of the aorta after just uh, two months of therapy. And uh, so this gave us some interesting findings. It also showed that when we had the comparator group uh, to compare with, even on treatment with both statins and the TNF-alpha blocker, there was residual inflammation in the aorta of these patients that was higher than those with known coronary artery disease, giving us both a, a way of tracking therapy, but also perhaps an insight into the underlying biology. Yeah. And, and there is a precedent there, isn't there, from the Admire HF heart failure study where they used MIBG imaging. And I, I think they found that, that you were about 30% uh, lower in your morbidity and mortality risk uh, if you were MIBG uh, negative. So I guess that's the similar sort of concept to what you'd be looking at f- for, uh, for that sort of study. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was a that was a different a different tracer looking at a different uh, process in in the myocardium in terms of innovation. But you're right. Yeah, uh, adding on to in that study ejection fraction, mm. yes. a, a nuclear technique to to better stratify those at risk. Or of, in the case of plaque percentage right. stenosis, exactly. for example, you've got okay. it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, turning now to Professor Chowdhury, so maybe I could ask you a more specific question then about uh, MRI and and its role in molecular imaging. I mean, we, we certainly we published before seeing how MRI, if you look at the AHA plaque stages, is potentially capable of picking up plaque in large vessels, admittedly, at, at all stages. Um, how, how do you see the role of MRI evolving in, in the next few years and iron oxide particles uh, and their place in that? So I think the beauty of MRI is its versatility. It gives you fantastic soft tissue, high-resolution structural imaging. Uh, in the case of the heart, of course, it gives you a lot of functional information, both about the myocardium, valves, flow, and so forth. So if you can add to that some molecular imaging techniques, and that's where MRI in particular as a modality will, will come into its own. You can obviously repeat it because it's both non-invasive and it doesn't involve um, ionizing radiation. But we're still a way off in terms of having probes that are useful to us for molecular definition that said a number of people around this table and others have developed molecular imaging probes that target such things as vascular cell adhesion molecule and selectins that are upregulated on activated endothelium there's scope there but as Terse was identifying earlier the gap between having something promising in a preclinical phase and having it synthesized to gmp and through the toxicology and out even into phase one studies is, 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 is a big one. Robin, we've heard some beautiful um, uh, basic science from, from uh, Dr. Narendorf. Uh, Dr. Jaffer has told us about an invasive imaging technique and uh, if James accepts that uh, a PET is best done with MRI co-registration, then, then you've published in all three of these areas. So uh, I'm going to ask you a specific question, which is which one's your money on? So if you look for 10, 15 years time, which uh, molecular imaging technique or what particular form would you see being most advanced and most nearest to clinical domain, accepting that obviously that some nuclear traces are, are already being used? I think that's a very difficult question to answer. I'm not quite sure I accept the premise. And I'll explain what I mean. So I think there are a couple of problems. So our understanding of plaque biology and plaque behaviour at the moment is pretty much informed by post-mortem 
pathology and by animal studies. And because we haven't had access to sophisticated imaging in humans, we don't really know how plaques behave prospectively and, and over the longer term. Then I think, by and large, both in experimental models and in human studies, we're going to end up mixing and matching imaging modalities to pick up and to pick out the targets that are of greatest in interest to us. And it may not be that for a given population, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis or patients with spontaneous unstable atherosclerotic plaques, it may be that we want to apply different imaging modalities and, and to pick up uh, different imaging targets. And I think the truth is, at the moment, we just don't know. Mm. One of the things that came out in today's session from both Matthias Narendorf and Jaffran, and in fact from James Rudd and Pet, was the importance of the dynamic nature of plaque inflammation and also the importance of the macrophages as both a coordinator of what's going on, target for treatment, but also a marker that when your plaques get hot, if you like, then there's probably flux inwards of, of macrophages. If you're going to ask me to stick my neck out, then I think things that track activation of the endothelium, which is a dynamic process, influx of macrophages, activity of macrophages, those are all going to be things that which will be likely to be useful, both in terms of defining risk and also mm. tracking treatment. Absolutely. And maybe just to to round down, we could we could concentrate on that dilemma. So trying to move forward, if, if, if everybody would like to contribute, what are the sorts of things that can be done uh, to try and ease the path forward for molecular imaging? I noticed there was a consensus document from the, the US last year from the NHLBI uh, suggesting various things, for example, academic industrial partnerships that can be done to move things forward. Uh, I'd be interested to know if any of your views on, on what else might be helpful in that regard. So I think one item really is the cost of toxicology studies. Mm -hmm. So it's anywhere around $100,000 to start with. And it's hard to just pull that out of your pocket. And it's typically not funded by typical grant applications because it's not especially exciting or novel to do a toxicology study. So I think what the uh, funding agencies now understand and the NIH is starting to uh, look into specific programs for this is to provide these toxicology services for free for academic centers that have a promising candidate. So so maybe that will help to take one hurdle. I'd, I'd agree with that. I think there's a very definite gap between what's interesting to conventional science funders and what investors or pharmaceutical companies might be interested in. There are in the UK a couple of schemes Wellcome Trust has one, the MRC has a developmental pathway funding scheme that recognises there may be value in technologies emerging from, from academic institutions that require substantial amounts of funding to bridge the gap to what might be investable by a, by a commercial organisation. That recognition exists and those, some of those schemes are in place, but I'm sure we could use more. Yeah, I agree. And that's very encouraging to finish on that positive note. I think the other thing that I've seen suggested, which to me, I'd be interested to know if the panel agree this is practical, but having molecular imaging sub-studies of larger clinical trials. I mean, Farouk, do you think that's something that's uh, easily done or introduced? I think James can comment on that further, but you know, certainly um, with FDG PET right now, which is widely available, um, it was possible to do in a robust multi-center way. Certainly for insights into drug efficacy, that would be fantastic. And then from prediction standpoints, 
um, that's clearly going to be advantageous, particularly right now, for example, in the carotid large arterial beds where it's very, very much available. But I think even, for example, stent studies, you know, which we know there are several looking at uh, with OCT now, the amount of uh, apposition of stent struts, whether it's re-endothelialized or not. And you showed very nicely today that actually there's a role for molecular imaging there too. So hopefully even in invasive cardiology trials. James, any, any thoughts on that? I completely agree with Farouk that um, some kind of embedding within an established clinical trial of one or more of these techniques is going to be very useful. Um, as you say, FDG PET is, is available right now in the clinic and is probably the leading candidate in that regard. But there are various MR techniques, particularly using the iron oxide, which uh, would also fulfill that criteria. Okay, well, thank you all very much for participating. Much appreciated. Not often we have the four in the room together. So many thanks indeed to Dr. Jafar and Dr. Narendorf for coming across the UK, of course, but also to Dr. Rudd, Professor Chowdhury. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of the Heart Podcast from the BCS 2012. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.